Good morning, Hilton Head. It is a pleasure to be back with you. I, I wish there was better circumstances for me to be here, but nonetheless, I am happy to come and share God's word with you this morning. We, as, as Pastor Brad said, we're in Sunday number two of our 21 days of prayer and fasting, and it will culminate with our prayer gathering October, August 11th through the 13th. And again, just to preface what Pastor Brad just said, we encourage you to sign up for that, to be part of that. We're going to sit there and praise the Lord. We're going to just worship the Lord. We, we pray that we're going to hear from the Lord, and he is going to do uh, superly abundantly more than we could ever think or imagine in that particular weekend. So let me just get this ready. I want to speak a little this morning about how God often reorients us according to his will and the various seasons that we go through. Right now, the season that we're in is a season of prayer and fasting as we try to draw nearer to God as both the church and as individuals, and, and we're praying that something is going to happen during these 21 days culminating, and then thereafter, that, that, that true revival is when, when God comes and visits us, we're changed thereafter. We're never the same, and we pray that God is going to do something new in our lives. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to camp out in the book of Nehemiah a little bit, because it's in this particular story that we're actually going to see recorded the first revival mentioned in the Bible. Revival is something that we are praying for during this fast. So let's let's pray together before we come to God's word. Lord, we thank you for your presence here this morning. We have already sensed the Holy Spirit stirring in the hearts during our worship, Lord. We pray, Lord, that he would teach us what we don't know this morning that he would show us what we can't see this morning and that he would make us what we're not this morning. And we give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, there is a call that comes across the ages that comes to us this morning. And it's so simple that it consists of only two words. It's presented as an invitation, but it's also presented as an opportunity, and it's presented as a command, a very stark command. Because this morning, this is life's most costly decision. It has changed human history and human lives more than any other spoken word ever, ever. Those words are, follow me. And they echo through the ages, and they echo in this sanctuary this morning. So I'm going to take a look at the story in Nehemiah about how God seized his people. There was a critical time in the people of Israel and the story of God's people in the time of Ezra in Nehemiah around devotion. And it is around that devotion that any any good sermon will ultimately get us to Jesus. Let's read this text. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses 
which the Lord commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it from the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him on his right hand stood Mataneah, Shema, Aniah, Urajah, Hilkiah, Maziah, and on his left, Padijah, Mashmakal, Melziah, Hashom, Hashdana, Zechariah, and Mushalom. Boy, did I get through that. <laughs> Got to do it one more time. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, and Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabithia, Horijah, Masiah, Kiltiah, Hazariah, Josabad, Hana, Belaliah, and the Levites. Woo. And they helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave them sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Lord. And then he said to him, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy of the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the time of Nehemiah, a group of Israelites were living in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the walls, so there's a lot of good things going on, but they're still in exile. They're still being ruled by another nation, and, and, and they're deeply troubled. I can just sense their mindset. Where is God? What, what's the story that we're in? What's the purpose of our lives? Have you cried out to God with those questions? In the midst of some of our circumstances where we may be lost and bewildered, we believe that we haven't heard from God. We can echo those same questions. Look what happens. We pick it up in verse 1. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Now all the people gathered as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Listen, there's something weird and something unusual going around here. There's this religious gathering. There's a 
a group of people and they gather in pain and in hope. There's enough pain to, to die to their old dreams. But there's enough hope for their future because the walls are getting rebuilt and God is doing something possibly to live to a new dream. And my prayer is for us, this church, as individuals in a body, that God during this prayer and fasting season, that he's going to place a new dream on your heart. And he's going to take you to places that you've never been before. He's going to use you in, in, in places and in events and in things that you have never possibly imagined that you can do. You see, God lives at the intersection of pain and hope. He, he can work with people there. So there's this religious gathering. Only the religious leaders don't call for the gathering. The people initiate. The text says, the people tell Ezra, the scribe, the priest, to go get the book. Read the book. We must know if our lives mean anything. Is there a God? Does he have something to say to us? Is there a purpose for all that's going around them? That's what they're feeling this morning. And they're crying out. Are you crying out this morning? Look what happens in verse 3. Then he read from it into the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the word. They were attentive to the law. Ezra begins to read. And he's beginning with the, the first books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses. And he reads that we're, we're, what we're told from daybreak until noon. For six hours, these people stand there. And he reads the Bible for six hours. And they listen with rapt attention. Because the word, the book, is where there's truth. And they had a hunger for truth. And truth is, it should be a hunger that we have today. Because truth is so convoluted. We hear people say, oh, what's true for you is, may not be true for me. Hogwash. There is an absolute truth, and we find it in God's word. We should be drawn to that. Truth is something so desperately missing in our culture today. So you read this text, and it's amazing. Ezra brings out the book and blesses it, blesses the God who provided the book. Then the people bless Ezra. They bless the book, and they bless the reading of the book. Heck, everyone's blessing everything and everyone. And then they prostrate themselves in an act of reverence and obedience. And then they stand. They don't sit there in nice, comfortable chairs. They don't sit in padded, reclining seats. They stand for six hours. How can they do this? 
What is going on? Church, we need sometimes to insert ourselves into these biblical narratives. We need to put ourselves in their place. Imagine living in a world with no electricity, no TV, no computers, no cell phones, no Facebook, no Twitter. Imagine for a moment never having heard the Bible, living in a world where you don't know the story. Why am I here? Is there meaning to my very existence? Or is this just a grubby little planet where grubby people crawl around trying to make as much money as they can to to endure as much pleasure as they can and to avoid as much suffering as they can? Is that all there is? Is that it? Is that all that's going on? Remember, these Jews who had come from Persia to Jerusalem were surrounded by a Persian mentality and lifestyle. Having been reared in that environment, that's what they brought back to Jerusalem. And they really want to know. And they listen for six hours to what matters most. Maybe they're not the stranger. Maybe we're the stranger. Maybe we have this SADD, a spiritual tension deficit disorder. Maybe. So this guy, Ezra, he, he stands up. Get the book. Ezra gets the book. He blesses it. They bow down and he starts to read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And some of the people standing there, I can imagine, they say, I knew it. I knew there was hope. I knew there was a story. And then they hear the story about the fall and how sin comes into the world and everything is wrecked. And that's why there's pain. And that's why there's death. And they are so, so sad. And then they hear about this God. He doesn't give up. He's kind of stubborn, this God. He keeps doing new things. And there's this story of Noah and a flood where God's going to judge what's wrong, but the judgment doesn't get the last word. And every time that there's a rainbow, it can be a reminder that God is good and that God is faithful. Listen to me. The rainbow is not a symbol of gay pride. It is a symbol and a promise that God makes to his people that every time after a storm that you see that rainbow, it's God's promise that he is God and he is good and the storm is now behind you. And I promise you good things moving forward. This really happened. stand there and listen to the word for six hours with great intensity 
and gratitude because it's about what matters. Then when they find out that there's this good God and he has a good plan and they've been living these grubby little lives just wasting them and throwing away generation after generation when it could be like this, praising God, worshiping God, hearing the word of God. And instead it's like that, oppression, injustice, violence, meanness. And their hearts just break and they sob and they can't stop. Oh, God, how did we get here? How did we get to this place in the world? Church, aren't we asking the same questions today? Our culture, our society, our nation, there is so much violence, injustice, pettiness, and meanness. Oh, we need to turn back to the truth of God's word to find comfort. Find promises that God makes to us and grab hold of them and don't ever let them go. People begin to weep because they knew they were guilty. They thought back over the years that they had lived with no spiritual guidance. They also recalled the sins of their forefathers that caused them to fall into captivity. And once in captivity, they failed to teach their children to remember the things of the past. And the depth of their guilt brought them to weeping. That's a good sign, by the way. You see, sometimes guilt is an excellent motivator. Sometimes God uses guilt to bring people out of their sin and bring them into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you, in remembering the guilt of your ungodly lifestyle before Christ, in remembering what you used to be like, are brought to tears? And it is in this moment that Nehemiah stood. Look at verse 10. The leaders... Ezra and Nehemiah and other people instruct them. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's where this great statement that we often hear about, it comes from Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is our strength. God is able to make all things well, and therefore, the only joy really worth all of its salt is the joy of the Lord. So for several days, they have a national campout. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. And we're told, have we read on in our scripture there, that there hadn't been a celebration like that since the time of Joshua. Because now God has revisited his people, and they're just in his grip. 
They come back together again and they read the book for another three hours and then they spend another three hours worshiping and confessing their sin. And then, and then, this is what we're getting to. They make a decision. In view of all this, we need to look at the language here. I invite us to look how they expressed this. The people have learned. They have understood. They've wept. They've rejoiced. They've repented. They've confessed. They've worshipped. Now they are deciding. And they decide to devote themselves to God. That is what that list of names that I couldn't pronounce before, what they were there for. To bring translation, to bring understanding, to provide direction on what the scriptures were saying. Now move down to chapter 9, verse 38. I want you to look at because that's where I think God is pointing us to during our fasting time. It says this, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. We, the people, they make a covenant with God. And our leaders, our Levites, and the priests seal it. Look at that language. They have committed to obey. Not just to obey, but to obey carefully. Not just to obey carefully, but to carefully obey all the commands, all the regulations, and all the decrees of our Lord. They have decided to follow Jesus. Fast forward, one day, Jesus comes. Here's what Jesus does. He takes all those teachings of the Torah, all of this stuff that they were talking about and they had listened to, and he explains it so absolutely everybody can get it. He doesn't need those guys with the funny names to help translate. He tells stories that about just what, they, they just stick in your mind. He makes it accessible to people outside the house of Israel and to the people inside the house of Israel. The stories of Jonah and Samson, David, Abraham. The stories that grip us today. How Jesus walked on water. How Jesus turned water into wine. All of these great stories that have gripped us. And he helps explain that this is not necessarily all about following rules. The goal has for you, God has for you, is not just that you do the right thing. That's important. But it's not just that. Heck, the Pharisees were all about behavior and legalistic ministry. 
Jesus makes clear the goal is not that you do the right things. The goal is that you become Christ-like. You become a person who would naturally and spiritually do the right thing. That you would become this kind of person who would naturally and spiritually bless. That you would naturally and spiritually not seek vengeance. That you would naturally and spiritually be generous. When he talks about the inside of the tree that has to be good, and he talks about aiming at the heart, that's what he's making perfectly clear to us. God offers us his presence, his spirit, and his power expressed ultimately through the resurrection. And then he says, follow me. Follow me. To follow Jesus means I admire him. I love him. And I think he's everything. But also it means I decide to do what he says. I actually decide to put obedience to Jesus above every other thing in my life. And when it doesn't happen, it kind of puts Jesus on tilt. He says to a group of people one time in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Or how about the greatest sermon ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount? He says this, Anybody who hears my words and puts them into practice and actually does them, it's like a really wise man who builds his house on the foundation of the rock. Anybody who hears my words and doesn't do them is foolish. Builds their house on a foundation that is about to crash. Then look at Jesus' final instructions. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Man, that's a lot of See, church, Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Jesus is saying to you right now, I am Jesus. It's me. I want you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You follow me. You may think you may not have much to offer, but Jesus says, I gave you what you have. It doesn't matter to me. You may think you've gone down a dark road and there's no return. That there's not enough grace for you. Jesus says, I am enough grace for you. There's always grace for you. Charles Spurgeon once said, the inn of grace is always open. Church, I want to tell you this. We, we love hearing Jesus loves you and Jesus heals you and, and Jesus is patient with you, and all of this is true, and precisely, precisely because it's true. But Jesus does not just love you. He calls you. Follow me. Follow me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. During our nightly prayer sessions over these last eight days, we have heard constantly the message 
of denying ourselves, to die to ourselves, to die to ourselves, picking up the cross and following Jesus. Can I share with you this one more time? This morning, an opportunity again presents itself. Because once more he comes. This crucified carpenter, this most humble and presumptuous leader, he calls to anybody residing at the intersection of pain and hope. And he says to you, I and I alone have mastered life. I and I alone have mastered death. And there is a vision of hope for you. There is a promise of meaning. There is an offer of forgiveness. There is a triumph of grace worth devoting your one and only life to. Follow me. It remains the most haunting and glorious invitation ever offered to the human race. During this fast and during the period beyond it, would you decide to wholeheartedly follow Jesus? Seth, you you and the team can, can come back up here. I want to say a moment, or actually I just want us all to bow our heads for a moment. I, I want to pray something over you. God, would you look down on my brothers and sisters in this room right now? And as you did long ago when the group of people stood with Nehemiah, as you did so long ago when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, would your spirit change us once more with wonder, with goodness, with the transcendent possibility that this offer of promise of this command, follow me. God, would you make this place, this church, would you make all of us people who experience nothing less than the decision to vote ourselves fully to become followers of Jesus. I'm going to ask Pastor Brad to come back up and the minister team to come into place. I want to encourage you this morning to come. I want you to let the strength of the Lord be your joy. Some of you have been battling pain, emotional, physical, financial, and whatever it is, God has something new in store for you. And as the people in Nehemiah's day stood, I'm asking you, and I know people don't want to get up and come to the front, but I'm asking you this morning, as the people of Nehemiah did, would you come and stand before the Lord and tell him that you have wholeheartedly decided to follow him. Amen.